Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. And next week it's 60 years since the Berlin Wall went up. Accordingly, I'm joined by Ian McGregor, who's the author of a book just out in paperback, Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. Welcome, Ian. Now, to start with, I want to kind of just get a picture for those readers who don't remember, which are, there will probably be many now, of what post-war Germany, immediately post-war Germany, in the run-up to the building of the Berlin Wall looked like. Because there's this sort of weird thing, wasn't there, that it was divided in two, or divided in four, technically, but the, the western side was the three Allied powers, the eastern side was controlled by Russia, and yet Berlin, which was also divided in two, was like a hundred miles or so into the eastern sector. So it was a sort of island. How did that come about? It's a very weird arrangement. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, so what you've got from, uh, obviously, May 1945, Hitler's dead. The Russians have now pushed through a third of... Uh, Germany towards the west. Uh, they've been met by the Allies on the Elbe River, as was agreed by the Allies at uh, their various conferences that they'd had at Yalta. So everyone was aware what was going on. But as you said, obviously, because the, the Red Army, uh, the juggernaut of the Red Army, millions of men and tanks, planes, everything, supported by the Allies, obviously, had, had pushed through and now captured the city. They were at least uh, 100 miles further west than Berlin. But what was agreed quite quickly a few months after uh, V-Day at the Potsdam Conference in July, again with the world leaders, slightly changed because obviously Roosevelt wasn't there. Uh, Churchill was there, but he wasn't the prime minister anymore. Clement Attlee was with the Labour government. But uh, the big bad uh, Stalin was still there. And uh, what had been agreed there would be how they would divide the country up. So obviously it's a country under occupation while they denazify the whole country, which they had to do, and then start about how they were going to rebuild Germany. Uh, and there's a very telling comment. It came after 1945. It was in 1946. But uh, Molotov, the foreign minister for Stalin, who'd obviously been there from the get-go, Molotov-Ribbentrop pact at the beginning of the war. Many of your listeners will know about that. But he made a very telling comment to the press uh, in 1946. He said, what happens to Berlin happens to Germany, and what happens to Germany happens to Europe. So that really puts into context what the Russians thought about not just uh, Germany's place in uh, Central uh, Europe and how it would dictate events and how it had dictated events because we had the Second World War, but how Berlin itself was going to be the same thing. So that was mirrored by the Allies too. That Everyone thought the capital of Germany, Berlin, needs to have a different kind of agreement just can't be occupied by the Russians, even though, like we said, it was 100 miles inside their territory. Germany itself was split into four sections. Originally, it had been three sections. It was just going to be what was seen as the Allies that had done the spade work in terms of defeating Hitler, so uh, America, Britain and, and Russia. At the last moment, because of de Gaulle's politicking behind closed doors and publicly as well to the, the French public, yes, uh, the French were given a section of... Germany that would be theirs to uh, military uh, given, uh, which is obviously on their border, Alsace-Lorraine, that, that kind of area. 
But the bulk of the country was split up uh, amongst uh, Russia, America and Britain. And to mirror that, it was going to be the same in Berlin. So Berlin was going to be this international, almost free city. But obviously it was going to be a very militarised city as well, because obviously the, all four occupying powers now had their own military garrisons and civilian uh, administrations that were going to be in the city that would mirror the rest of Germany that was going to be rebuilt. Uh, so that that's where we were by July is when the first uh, British troops went in, which is what I talk about in the book. First military organisation for Britain to go into uh, defeated Berlin was uh, the Royal Military Police that uh, took our representatives in to meet the Russians that were going to set about how the uh, Kommandatur, as it would be called, would be the Allied uh, governing board, military governing board that would rule Berlin from there on. So that's what you've got. So. The problem is, as we talked about with uh, Molotov's comment about where G Berlin and Germany were placed in terms of international relations, Stalin would be happy with the fact that, yes, he's got a big chunk of Germany and no, he's not going to let go of it. And that would be seen over the next few years as he really cemented uh, a Russian hegemony over not just Germany, but the other countries that they conquered moving westwards. So Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, uh, Romania, etc., for him, he wasn't going to give it up. And the last thing I would have thought, and it's obvious that he would want, is some kind of thorn in his side, 100 miles behind his own uh, lines of uh, security, a security buffer zone, where he had uh, not just a westernised uh, civilian population, but obviously, as I just said, a military garrison, which would total, through the Cold War years, it would total about 10,000 across the French, British and American services. Uh, 10,000 troops, uh, heavily armed. Obviously, they didn't have a lot of tanks or anything like that, but heavily armed troops, you don't want 100 miles behind your own line. So that, that's where we were from 46, 47 onwards, and we can talk about other things as we go. Fast forward, then, we've got the picture of this kind of rather uneasy stasis post-Berlin Ailip. But, you know, as we run up to 1961, what is it that prompts the building of the Berlin Wall, which is takes everyone kind of by surprise, doesn't it? Well, to a certain degree, well, the, the answer is, is simple. People. People is the answer. People leaving East Germany in their hundreds of thousands to where by 1961 of a country of 17 million, like I said, it's one third of what was originally Germany at the time. Uh, 17 million citizens now under an East German government but by 1961, so from going from, say, you could argue uh, when the Berlin airlift ends, say, so 1949, uh, the autumn of 49, right the way through to August 61, 2.1 million East Germans had migrated. The communist government in charge of them would say illegally they were uh, fleeing the republic. But of that 2.1 million, that's a sixth of the population, by the way, 50% of them were under 25, and a bulk of them, a big bulk of them, were the professional classes. So teachers, architects, engineers, scientists, uh, lawmakers, etc., etc. The lifeblood, the life structure of any workable, successful society stroke economy. And 
that was the issue. That was the big story that was going through. Uh, I mean, obviously, there were other issues in terms of economics and supply and demand and what the East Germany was getting, not just from its allies in the East, so what Russia and its the, what would be the Warsaw Pact countries could supply it to keep it afloat. Because East Germany was quite agricultural, the eastern part of Germany was very agricultural at the time. It was uh, the, 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 the heavy industry and, and commerce was really in the West. So obviously that was a huge economic success story as soon as the Allies started pumping money in to rebuild it. In the East, it was a completely different story. Like I said, they'd been stripped of a lot of their infrastructure by the Russians straight away. But then when, once that was trying to be rebuilt, they're doing it from a very, very low base. So it was always going to be hard. So from 1952, 53 onwards, if you're an East German, A, you might, they might be telling you you've got a job for life, education is free right up until university and healthcare is fantastic. But if your career paths are blocked at every turn from what the government wants you to have, your political choices are very limited, basically non-existent, it's a one-party state. And the cost of living is really high. Your, your, your working hours are very long. Not much you can buy with East German currency. That's why they're leaving. They're looking at the success story that was in the, the West and thinking, I would like some of that too. Now, this was very visible to people, obviously. You know, it wasn't just the Russians and the East German authorities mm. who, were, who were aware of this. Yeah. And there's a sense, which is kind of fascinating, but that the West, the Western allies kind of, uneasily sort of recognised that probably actually this was going to have to stop and that maybe their path of least resistance was in some ways to go along with it. You quote William Fulbright, the chairman mm. of the then Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, saying, I don't understand why the East Germans don't close their border because I think they have a right to close it. Yeah. Well, I'm... Um... There, there were signals being given. I mean, like I said, this issue had been going on, especially since once, once Stalin had died and by 1956, Khrushchev's in charge. And obviously there's a slight uh, loosening of the totalitarian shackles on society in Russia so people can speak a little bit free, I suppose. Obviously, Khrushchev gave his big speech behind closed doors about how bad Stalin had been as a leader. But that was going on. And it was Khrushchev ultimately felt the same as Stalin. He wanted a unified, neutralised Germany. That was in the best interests of Russian foreign policy, because ultimately, as I said before, they saw a, a neutral, disarmed uh, Germany as much more useful long term for what kind of goals they wanted to, to dominate that part of Europe. And it would be ultimately successful for them. He wanted that, and he did not like being told by his... Uh, East German colleagues, Walter Ulbricht, who was in charge of this brain drain, this human brain drain going on that was ultimately going to, sooner or later, very quickly destabilise the country. And much like you have the Truman Doctrine in the States, where it's the domino theory of one state will fall one by one to communist rule if you allow even one to fall. I would imagine that the Kremlin had the same point of view about East Germany. They couldn't allow it to fall because if it did, therefore Poland, it might happen to Poland, it might happen to Hungary, etc., etc. So that's what was going on. And the Allies, I could probably see, definitely by the time John F. Kennedy was president and he'd had his big meeting, first international meeting with Khrushchev in 61 in Vienna, prior to the war being built, only a couple of months prior to it. It's very obvious that a very belligerent, aggressive Khrushchev in that meeting was 
this is what we want you need to sort this problem out or we're going to sort it out for you and if it means war it means war and so a very badly shaken Kennedy came away from that meeting thinking this guy means business. So from the archives that I've, you know, the speeches and the diary entries and the letters and the correspondence that I've, I've read when I was putting this book together, there were two sides to the story in, in Washington. There was the Doves and the Hawks. And obviously the Doves wanted to work with the Russians, could understand the situation that they were coming from and the issues that they had with this brain drain and Fulbright was just vocalising that kind of argument, saying, well, if they want to actually stop their own people from getting out of the country, who are we to stop them? As The one thing we haven't talked about is because Berlin was 100 miles inside the Russian zone, by 61, the actual barrier, the, the actual border, the intra-German border that ran from the Baltic down to Czechoslovakia, over 900 miles, that separated East and West Germany was a very hard border by then. So it's very, very difficult to get through it. Whole swathes of, the, of that border were no man's land. You couldn't go in unless you had a pass. You'd have to go through five or six sections just to even get to the wire. And then you're going to meet armed guards, dogs, armoured cars, etc., etc. Very difficult. So for the canny East German, uh, the, the easiest way to go would be Berlin, because as I talk about it in the book, all the zones, because it was a very free-flowing city, since it had been taken over in 45, the, there was no hard border there. So people, as we do in every city, as you and I do in London, uh, we go, we crisscross the city to go to our jobs, to go to doctor's appointments, see friends, etc., etc. That was going on in Berlin right the way up until August 61, once they built the wall. So if you're an East German, you could cross the border as long as you had the pass, you'd get through. Czechs were, you know, perfunctory. They weren't hard. And that's the key loophole that needed to be closed off. And they closed it off very abruptly, maybe yeah. feeling they'd been given some sort of permission to do it, or at least the sense that the West wouldn't yeah. really interfere. Yeah, yeah. How did I... they go about it? Because it's, I mean, logistically, it's absolutely astounding. If you imagine suddenly kind of, say, dividing London in two. It's important. I know, it's a nightmare. I mean, very Germanic that they did it so quickly and so thoroughly. But yeah, so Operation Rose, as it was called, that was August 13th. But there were, again, I, as, as reading the correspondence and the meetings and the minutes, I was reading minutes between Ulbricht and, and Khrushchev yesterday, actually, I just found some. And this had been requested for weeks, if not months, by Ulbricht, that they needed to do some kind of hard, very hard border in the city. And... It was a game of uh, poker, I suppose, with Khrushchev to say, how bad does the situation need to be before you actually take uh, some action and give me the green light to put this into place? So by the beginning of August, at a high-level meeting, secret high-level meeting in the Kremlin between Ulbricht and his government and Khrushchev, that was the sign-off. That was, the, that was the, the green light given, as in, OK, this is what we're going to do. So as you're saying, it's huge. I mean, it's a city of over 3 million people. And it's not just uh, streets and roads you're closing off, uh, not just across the city, it's all around the city, so you have to hermetically seal it in. You're talking about the overground train system, the underground train system, the sewers. So everything was meticulously planned that involved tens of thousands of workers and troops. So 
you had possibly uh, August 13th when it happened on a weekend. So it caught everyone by surprise because, you know, very typical on a summer's uh, weekend in Berlin, as they do today. Lots and lots of people have their second homes or their, their allotments in the lakes and the forests that surround uh, Berlin. So that's where they've gone. No, was it? no one's expecting any trouble, even though if you read the, the intelligence reports, you know, you know something, you would have known something's going to happen. Uh, as I was saying to you before we started this, today's the 60th anniversary that the authorities started to do much harder checks on East and West Berliners crisscrossing the city, uh, even arresting people temporarily just to stop them getting across the border. Grenzgangers, as they're called, cross-border travellers. That has started to come into place. So day by day in August, right up until the 13th, they were just starting to squeeze the life out of movements of the city itself. And while all this was going on, the thousands of tons of material, cement posts, barbed wire, breeze blocks, all that kind of thing, concrete, it's all being stored around the, uh, the boundaries of the city and then moving in the troops and the workers. So it was over 20,000 civilian workers, 25,000 what we would see as a kind of East German dad's army, the factory fighting workers, but the heavily armed and two very well-trained uh, motorised divisions of about 4,000 men apiece. One motorised division with 200 tanks and armoured cars would be in the centre of the city to obviously monitor the split of the city. And then the other motorised division and, and their vehicles would be on the, the hinterland outside the city while they're closing off that section. And within twenty less than 24 hours, they closed off 192 streets, 97 that crisscrossed the centre of the city and 95 going out of the city. 81 official crossing points that, again, had seen your normal human traffic that you saw every day were now reduced to 10, and one of which would be Checkpoint Charlie, which is the title of the book. But that's it's, it's an incredible feat. But you could argue if the Allies had pushed and they were expect they they uh, the, those first few days, definitely the first 24 hours, I would argue that the East Germans and the Russians would have pulled back if the, the Allies had rolled their sleeves up and went straight to the border with some armoured cars and tanks and that you're not doing this. What the hell are you doing? Lots of guys that I interviewed that were witnesses, whether they're in the military forces or civilians that witnessed this as well, were were agog, were gobsmacked that nothing was done. So we effectively winked at it, presumably out of, well, out of the well-justified cowardice that, you know, we, we might kick off World War Three, and that maybe we thought the freedom of the East Berliners was a price worth well, yeah, Yeah, as Kennedy famously said, a war's a hell of a lot better than a, than a, than a war. But equally, the key thing was, again, it's, when I've been interviewing people for the book it's, who witnessed it, it's everything, the, the, the whole project and the atmosphere of the guards who actually, the, the, these German guards that were there, thousands of them, they were guarding their own workers to make sure they didn't scram and try and get away. But they were mainly there facing, the, facing eastwards into their own uh, city to make sure that their own civilian population didn't try to stop what they were doing and didn't try to escape themselves. You've obviously got some nice propaganda imagery of uh, the East German militia guards with them, Russian-made submachine guns standing by the Brandenburg Gate, sardonically smiling towards the West. That's fine because that's where, where the bulk of the West Berlin 
uh, civilian, the younger civilian population were really semi-rioting and protesting was at the, the real big tourist important sites like the Brandenburg Gate. And that's where these Germans had, had uh, situated some water cannon and that kind of thing. And they fully expected the West Berlin to police to stop stop them doing getting across the border, which they did. But to the Allies looking on, they're, they're looking at what these Germans are doing. They're inside their own border. They're building this wall inside the territory. Presumably would have been, if we'd said, this won't stand with bulldozing them. I mean, that would have been a violation of their... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that, that's almost like a, a tripwire to hostilities. And as I said earlier, yes, we had a powerful Allied garrison there, but they only numbered a couple of brigades and a few squadrons of tanks. And they're deep within the Soviet zone and they're surrounded by... Three, over 300,000 Russian and East German troops, over 3,000 tanks, various air forces, etc., etc. So they wouldn't stand a chance. And, you know, and obviously I, I, I interviewed the last commandant of, uh, of Berlin when the Berlin Wall was up, the British commandant, and he, he, he candidly said, he said, you know, we were gone. As if, if ever they'd wanted to come into Berlin and, uh, and just take us out, we, were, we would have put up a good fight. We were gone. That still held true back in 61. So... If they're watching these Germans build this thing inside, then they were. They were a couple of hundred yards inside their own territory. What can you do? What commander not getting any kind of strong backing from Washington, Paris or London is going to take matters into his own hands and send the tanks across the border? It's just not going to happen. So, well, as I say, we didn't push back. It didn't turn into a political argument. It, it became what, what you know, sometimes called a fact on the ground. And for the years that followed, um, I'm interested in kind of where it worked, and you talk very interestingly in lots of different ways in your book about that, but one of the first most striking things was, shall we, we were still dealing with the Russians, weren't we? I mean, we didn't actually recognise East Germany yeah. as a thing for some years, yeah. did we? I mean, that complicated it. Yeah, but it, again, it's uh, what I found, I mean, you have to laugh. I mean, you shouldn't, but you have to laugh. It's everyone... All the Allied personnel and diplomats I interviewed for the book, and I interviewed over 70 of them, French, British and American, they were, I wouldn't go as strong to say as disparaging, but they had no respect for the East Germans uh, in terms of their claims that they, they now had a sovereign state. That was the key thing. And that's reflected in the fact that, it, obviously, you've seen it. Checkpoint Charlie was always just a wooden shed. A, a very basic wooden shed. Obviously, it was by the 80s, it looked more like a sophisticated temporary classroom. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the, the famous shed, uh, which is at the Allied, uh, the originals at the Allied uh, Museum in West Berlin in the American sector. It, yeah, I mean, it just housed a couple of people. And it, it was a, a white wooden shed with a, a couple of telephones and, a, you know, just your, your average bar that came down to stop traffic. Whereas you... You look across to, you know, three, four hundred yards across to the east. And by the time you're getting to the 1970s, it's a it's a complex. It's this very distinctive, can't miss it, you know, Stalinist type complex. Was there in any sense a sort of political decision taken, you know, we're going to keep our side of it pretty informal? I mean, well, because there is a sort of propaganda value in that, isn't there? 
Yeah, that, that, that was the point. So, I mean, Checkpoint Charlie is Checkpoint Charlie because it's just a phonetic alphabet. So by the time of... So the Berlin Wall's happened. So the Allies just renamed the, the, the key checkpoints that, we, that would get you to the, the Russian sector. So what I, what I failed to say was, you know, the Allies still enjoyed... Another reason for we'll live with this war is the Russians and the East Germans weren't going to stop the Allies in the sectors in West Berlin having their normal access to the Russian sector in Berlin. There was still free access for diplomats and military personnel uh, from our side to travel in, and they could travel into our sector too. So again, the, uh, the Allies' rights of travel, which had been agreed at Potsdam, weren't affected. Well, there was a bit of a hiccup there, wasn't there? There was a, there was a hiccup. We, we'll the definitely talk about that. The opera. Yeah. I mean, I love this. It's, it, it was the opera, wasn't it? It's, yes, it's yeah, yes, yes. It's the opera in East Berlin, and all hell breaks loose. Well, that, that's, again, that, that was the thing, talking to all the veterans from the 50s and the 60s, one of their... They loved Berlin. I mean, my, my, my dad went did R&R &R in Berlin when he was in the uh, army of uh, the Rhine. And that's one of the things they loved is because of the disparity in the uh, the currency, the East and West uh, mark, It was a th I think it was a three-to-one ratio. So obviously you, you could dine and live like a king if you were a, a military personnel or, or diplomat or even a West Berliner in East Berlin. So as you were saying, one of the favourite things officers and diplomats loved to do was uh, go to the opera in East Berlin because the way it had just fallen was most of the operas, the sector where the main operas were, fell in the Russian zone. And they were one of the main things that the Russians made sure that they reconstructed quite quickly because they, they you know, from a propaganda appeal, it's great to have the arts burgeoning again in their sector. And then they loved the opera too. So Alan Leiter was a, a diplomat, junior diplomat at the, uh, uh, for the Americans in Berlin, and he was just taking his wife Dorothy to their uh, their weekly said annual their weekly trip where they'd go and have a lovely meal as well. But again, I would argue that it was part of a deliberate ploy to uh, Leitner and his wife were trying to see if because they knew something was going on, and they knew some, these Germans were going to stop applying more pressure, and. Uh, it works because the Americans found out quite abruptly that instead of just being waved through with his diplomatic plates that were on his Volkswagen, he was stopped and an East German officer, rather than a Russian officer, which was the norm, uh, demanded to see his papers. And obviously he's not going to do that. He's not going to give them the papers. Uh, he demanded his uh, right of free travel. And just parked a car, put the handbrake on, said, I'm not moving. And what I'm talking about was he was almost like the canary in the mine, was the Americans now had, Kennedy had sent his own man on the ground, even though he wasn't part of the military chain of command, General Lucius Clay, who had been the hero, had been the first Allied commandant in charge for the Allies in 1945. He'd been the architect, successful architect of the Berlin Airlift in 48-49. Berliners loved him. So when the wall had gone up, he was one of the main guys Kennedy had sent over just as a kind of morale booster for the Berlins to say, we haven't forgotten you. I've sent my my hardest Cold War warrior is going to come over and live in the city. Uh, and this was one of Clay's things. And Clay was waiting for the opportunity to really, because he loved and wanted to go head to head with the communists to say, we're not going to take a step back. Uh, he'd famously said, you know, I would have pushed straight through those barriers on day one with the armoured cars. It wouldn't have happened under my watch. So he sent down a platoon of armed uh, USMPs, bayonets fixed in their jeeps, raced out towards where Leitner was parked, surrounded him, didn't bring him back, 
just said, right, on we go. Brush these Germans aside who weren't going to take them on. And they did this glamorous, very high-profile tour, not just to the opera, but around the whole part of the central part of East Berlin as a kind of thumbing your nose at the, these Germans. Didn't just do it once. They did it twice, three times. Like, like, uh, you know, dragging the body of Achilles around the gate. Yes, yes exactly, exactly, exactly. And just high stakes poker and you've got to remember this is before 24 hour rolling news mobile phones uh, satellite connections all this kind of stuff so washington jfk in uh, washington and khrushchev know about this but they know about it quite late in the day and before you know it within a day of all this starting to go off two three days this kicking off we've now got tanks uh, so the the is ratcheted up the the stakes have been really you know let's bet on red and Clay sent all, all his tanks have gone down to Checkpoint Charlie. And they, the, the Americans had a dozen tanks. Uh, the Brits had about six tanks. And like I was saying, we're surrounded by thousands of tanks. And the Russians start to get involved. So they're backing their East German colleagues. And so you've got uh, T-72s on one side, American Patton tanks on the other. You've got the famous photos of which we've all seen. And the Russians, you know, Badly for us, the Russians had dozens of tanks parked in side streets. And that's that's the, the one and only time Russian and American troops have had live ammunition locked and loaded, pointing at each other, ready to go. And that's why I was calling it the most dangerous place on earth. Because it wasn't just... My, Berlin was then the microcosm. As we've seen in films later on, the powers that be had now gone to DEFCON 3 or DEFCON 2. Everyone's on their guard. Air Force squadrons have been launched on both sides. Everyone's wondering what's going to happen. That's when Kennedy gets involved, the Kremlin get involved through back channels, and it manages to dial it down. And obviously, Clay's got a... Was this the uh, incident, sorry, I should disagree, sorry, where, where the Russian tanks, they'd, they'd sort of concealed their markings? Yeah, sorry, yeah. So that, that was, yeah that's, yeah, that's one of the key interviews I got. So there's a guy called Lieutenant Werner Pike, US military police. He's bilingual, spoke fluent Russian. And he was given the task by his, office, his commanding officer on the ground. Uh, there was a colonel of US military police at Checkpoint Charlie with, with Lieutenant Pike. And uh, he was told, right, Werner, you speak Russian. I need you to go over there and find out. Who are those guys? Because as you just said, the Russia, the tanks that had turned up had no markings and the crews were dressed in black overalls. They had no markings. So if they'd been Russian tanks, then the Americans know what they're dealing with. And they know they're dealing with an ally, uh, not an ally, but there's, there's, there's agreements and there's ways of going about sorting this out. On the other hand, because of what we just talked about, they don't recognise East Germany yet as a sovereign state. If there are East German tankers in East German tanks, then there's a major problem and there's going to be serious repercussions. So this guy, uh, Lieutenant Pike, he goes over, sneaks over, goes to one down one of the side streets, and the, the, the tank crews uh, have, have gotten out, and they're doing what all soldiers do. They're just, they're just chilling, reading the paper, having a cigarette. And he sneaks into one of the tanks and checks out what's inside, and he sees newspapers with Cyrillic, obviously, prints, uh, instructions on the tanker in Cyrillic. So he's thinking, they're, well, they're Russians. But one of the stories I heard afterwards when I was doing an, an event in Berlin and uh, it was at the Allied Museum and one of uh, the old veterans, West Berlin police veterans, had said to me, well, he said, you know, there's another story. They, had, they, they, just, they didn't just send him over. We were told by 
uh, ex-Stasi uh, commanders afterwards that we'd actually had CIA operatives over there and they were instructed to go up to the tanks that had crews in and they were throwing stones at the tanks and just continually throwing these stones until one of the officers popped his head out of the tank and swore at them in Russian. And then they, they legged it back to, uh, to our side and said, well, they are Russian because they've just sworn at us in Russian. So again, once, once, that was, once the facts were established of who are we dealing with, then it was easier to know, well, how do we go about ratcheting it down and uh, making contact and pulling away with as much grace as possible. So no side loose face. But I mean, as a result of that, Clay was very hastily put on a plane back to Washington and he, he came back, not in disgrace. I mean, the Berliners still worshipped him and they still worship him to this day. But I think even the Allies, uh, the, the, the command structure in, in West Germany and in, in, uh, in Western Europe and in Berlin were very glad to see the back of Clay thinking, you know, we don't need this kind. Of, it, it's from the early 50s. It's not happening now in the 60s. Now, for ordinary people, you know, you, you talk a lot, there are lots of great stories in here, which I haven't really got time to get into, of the, of the, you know, escapees and the people who were shot trying to escape and the ingenious ways in which people dug or swam or tunneled or, you know, pole vaulted their way to freedom. But sort of a weird thing is the way in which there was a sort of a, there were routes out, in the sense that the West, for start, they want they didn't want the unproductive oldies. So they essentially yeah. they would quite happily send you west if you were past retirement age. Yeah. But yeah. also that you could be bought for about a yeah. hundred grand if but you you'd have to be undesirable first, is that right? So you try to escape, you get chucked in prison, and then the Westies can buy you out. Yeah, depending on who you were and uh, what relatives, well, depending on who you were and how important you were to the, the West German government, uh, whether you're a political prisoner, someone who'd been caught in the military, that was definitely going to happen. Uh, and if you had relatives with money as well, or relatives with, uh, shall we say, that could apply pressure to the West German government to highlight your case. But it was very lucrative and to an East German government that, whose economy was always, always, always in trouble all the way through its whole, its whole existence. It was in trouble if it hadn't been kept uh, propped up, I should say, by Soviet money and uh, supplies, as well as, uh, ironically, Western Europe loans, especially from West Germany, it wouldn't have survived. But one of their ways that they realised, and, and it was an actual official, well, it, it was semi-official policy, was this almost human traffic, this conveyor belt of human traffic, as you said, undesirables, that they wanted to get out. And there was a, there was a menu of, depending how important you were to, the, to West Germany, of how much money it would cost to get you out. And that, yeah, I mean, it, it literally was uh, almost like factory operated. It's a very, I mean, very different attitude to refugees than you often see, isn't it? I mean, you know, mm. here's a country actively paying to import people. Yeah, and the irony is, I mean, one of the reasons they gave, uh, and they, they still argued even when the war was built, was obviously the, the authorities, East German authorities, uh, vilified those that were migrating before the war was built and those that escaped after the war was built. But always they were under the umbrella of uh, the fascist West's policy of human trafficking. Human trafficking, innocent uh, East German citizens convincing them that, 
you know, their, their salvation lay in the evil West. That's how they always portrayed it. Obviously, anyone with an ounce of sense in East Germany is thinking, well, that's nonsense. I know what it's all about. And as you said, once you were past a certain age in East Germany and your working life was predominantly over, again, hard economics. They just saw you as a burden on the state. So why should they give you free health care and pension payments and social housing when they could they could cart you off obviously willingly, but they could cart you off to, to uh, the West and let them have the trouble of, of doing, the, doing the job for you. Now, you, you give a lot of space to a couple of kind of excellently pivotal speeches, of course. So, you know, Kennedy's Ich bin ein Berliner and this lovely kind of turn in where Bruce Springsteen gives this concert, yeah, which, yeah. you know, 300,000 people turn up to. It's absolute chaos. And he's told mid-concert, don't use the word wall. Um, and has to change to say, you know, I hope all barriers come down. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you didn't, you don't, unless I turned over two pages at once, mention Reagan's Mr Gorbachev tear down this wall speech. Why was well, that? I, was it not important? I, I, it was. No, I, I, do, I do mention it, but, but in passing. Uh, but you, you've got to remember, by then, things were in play... Everything was in play. So Gorbachev had been in charge. By the time of Reagan's speech where he says, he says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And that, that was, a, you're right, it, it, to, to a degree it was pivotal, but Gorbachev had been in charge for quite a few years prior to that. And obviously his policies of perestroika and glasnost, so the liberalisation of the, you know, loosening the, the dictatorial chains of the economy, freeing up enterprise, and then obviously the liberalisation of, to a degree, but politics in not just in Russia, but in, in the in the Warsaw Pact countries as well. So that, that had been going on for a few years and through back channels and then obviously the high profile meetings he'd had with Reagan when Reagan was president, there was a slow process of working towards uh, what was going to happen, not just about the Berlin Wall, but what was going to happen about the Cold War itself and the Iron Curtain. So the, the, the Berlin Wall was obviously at the sharp point of, of those discussions. But it, it, it's, I wouldn't harshly say it was a PR stunt because there was a lot of prior, just, you know, a couple of hours before he made that speech, they were rewriting it and rewriting it. It was very, it was a, re, it was a real kind of should he or shouldn't he say that? But as, as, as you know, and lots of your listeners will know, he was such a brilliant speaker. He, his, his oratory and his moment for the timing and the passion he could give. And I mean, again, I've looked at dozens of photos of him. He's standing right they always stand by the Brandenburg Gate. They've got it towering above them. It just sounds good, but you know Reagan was already out, or you know he, he the changing of the guard and George Bush Senior was about was coming in. I I would think he was. It was more for a, it was it was PR and it was to make obviously he had the West German government leaders were there as well. So it, it, it gives everyone a feel good factor and it applies a little bit more pressure to Gorbachev and the Kremlin. Because East Germans weren't going to budge. That's what I forgot to no, say. No, well, I mean, I mean that's, what's, what's really sort of interesting, it seems to me, is that Gorbachev is, you know, Honecker is well out of step with Gorbachev. Massively, yeah, yeah. You know, and in fact, what sort of does for Honecker is Gorbachev's visit, isn't it? Yes, I mean, as you said, so Eric Honecker, who'd been the architect of Operation Rose to Build the Wall, he was the one that Ulbricht had charged with implementing it, and he, he did it brilliantly. And then he'd actually pushed Ulbricht out in a bloodless coup in 1970 and taken over. So he'd been in charge, and he's, he's just like Ulbricht. He's, he's, you know, 
died in the war Stalinist and the whole project had not veered from its path despite what we were saying about Western loans and Russian currency backing them and all that kind of thing. He still believed in the, the dream of a utopian East Germany. And so when Gorbachev comes for the 40th anniversary that October in 1989, he's the deliverer of bad news. Well, he's the deliverer of reality. So he's saying to Honecker and Honecker's kind of henchmen of that generation that are still in charge, time's up, boys, you know, in basically speaking. I've got my own issues to sort out. I've got to sort out the Soviet Union, which I'm doing gradually. I'm getting there. We're not going to have the muscle to back you in terms of troops and hardware in East Germany to prop you up. And, and the money's, the, the, the tap's being turned off as well. And if you don't, that uh, he's famous for saying in, in this secret uh, Politburo meeting, someone who doesn't accept reality is going to be swept away by events. And that was brutally and rudely put down by Honecker in front of the Politburo saying, you know, you're talking nonsense. But what he didn't know was there was a new generation, you know, albeit they're in their 50s, but the new generation that had grown up from the 60s onwards were now about to have another bloodless coup to replace Honecker, who was, who was dying of cancer anyway. He didn't know, but he had cancer. And they were the ones that would take out Honecker and his old guard and they were the ones that came in by the time the wall would fall in November. And that, you know, the falling of the wall, as you, I mean, it almost seems like sort of fast. This, that Krenz, the, who's replaced Honecker, sort of says, right, we're going to liberalise travel. People can cross the border, whatever they like. And it's given to this functionary who, yes. who kind of reads it off a piece of paper without seeming to understand in front of the world's press what he's just said. Is that... Yeah, well, poor old Gunter Schabowski. He gets a bad press, bad pun, but he does. Uh, he, he was an intelligent guy. I mean, he's a hard, he's very, very able, hard-working administrator. He'd be, he'd be, again, he'd be same, roughly the same age as Krenz. He's in that, that generation, and he'd gone up the, 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 the party ladder. And because of what had been going on through 1989, I mean, that's the back story. I mean, you've got everything going on with the peace protest movement in East Germany, still lots of people trying to leave and get through uh, the now open barriers between Hungary and Austria. So East Germans had a, a kind of back channel to try and get out of East Germany because it, it was all about free travel. More than anything else, it was about free travel. They just wanted to, to get out and, and experience life, this younger generation anyway. So poor old Schabowski had, had been dealing with this all through that hot, long, paranoid summer and... He was exhausted, so he'd been given time off. First day back in the job, he goes into a, a high-powered meeting and Krenz gives him this memo to say, this is what you're announcing today. Because Krenz had now taken over, as you just said, and what he tried to do would have a softly, softly approach to his own population and the world's press to say, look how much open we are. This is a new generation of government. We're going to give daily press conferences to the world and to our own people and show you step by step how we're going to evolve still be in power, mind you, but we're going to open up travel to our own citizens and try and quell this unrest. So I, I found the memo uh, in the archives and it's scribbled, it's got annotations all over it. And Schabowski just basically didn't read it. He, he just thought he could wing it. And so he's in this uh, press conference that the government had set up, uh, the daily one. And again, this is someone you've got to remember who's all his life or all his adult life dealt as a, a, a media person in the communist sphere. He's certainly not used to 
dozens of voices shouting at him at any one time, asking questions and, and knowing that he has to answer now. So again, that took him by surprise. And you can tell if you look at the video, he's just, he's thinking, get me out of here. And he's just asked the wrong question at the, like, the wrong time. And, and such is history, uh, where he's talking, he's trying to explain his way through the labyrinthine pol new policy of how East Germans will go around the bureaucratic step-by-steps of gaining access for travel and how they get back into the country. And instead of announcing the dates, he just says, well, it'll, it'll, it happens immediately. And so starting gun goes and within hours, you've got tens of thousands of East Germans who have seen it and have seen it on West uh, German, West Berlin TV that they can secretly get, but also heard it on West Berlin and West German radio that they can secretly hear. And then it spreads like wildfire. And before you know it, like I said, tens of thousands have gone down to the checkpoints that normally they would never go near if they haven't got permission because they get arrested and carted off. But it's human, you know, it's people power. You've got that many people, you can't arrest them. And so that's what I talk about. I talk about the timeline hour by hour. What were the Allied commanders looking on and the civilians thinking as they're looking at this? What were the because I interviewed the Checkpoint Charlie commander, uh, Peter Bachman, thinking, what were you thinking when you were watching all this? And it, because it's a, like we just we were talking about, it's a, it's a very strict communist command structure. Commanders on the ground are ringing desperately to headquarters thinking, what do we do? We just, we've just watched the TV like everyone else and there's thousands and thousands of people here. Do we push them away? Do we open fire? What do we do? And they weren't given any instructions because the whole of government had frozen in that moment thinking, it taken them by surprise. Did did Krenz not anticipate in any way what was going to happen? Did he? Because it's such a big. Even even had it, you know, even had his chosen announcer remembered to say, you know, this will be from the thirtieth or yeah, whenever, yeah, yeah. and you'll need these papers, and you know, had, had added those riders. It's still such an enormous transformation. I mean, it seems a little well, naive that he just has sort of popped it out at the end of a press briefing without thinking this is, you know. Yeah, I mean, he literally, he, yeah, I mean, he literally caught Schabowski on the stairs as they'd left the meeting. He wasn't even in the meeting where they were discussing it. He said, this is the things we've been talking about. Here's the memo. This is what you've got to announce today. And he didn't even impress upon him. He didn't take the time to sit him down and say, this is the major policy we're announcing today. What was he thinking? I, th I think they're just caught in the moment. And again, like I was saying, you've got to think about these guys were... It was ingrained in them how you would go about in a very communist uh, one-party state of how you would go about implementing policies and how much control you had to implement the story. Whereas now they're in the glaring headlights of, of to us, what is normal Western media approach to how you roll out a story part by part and how you can try and can control the story. And obviously they didn't control it at all. I was interested by something you you quote Timothy Garton Ash saying that actually it could all have gone very differently had it not been for Tiananmen Square. Yes, well, that, that's the key thing. I mean, the one thing, I wouldn't say credit Krenzer because, you know, he I get, at the end of the day, he was still deputy to Honecker through the, you know, the 70s when a lot of bad stuff was happening and the 80s. But what they... They certainly didn't want, and what he said in meetings was, I don't want a Chinese solution. And by that he meant, obviously, it had only been months before a similar thing had happened where you've got mass civilian unrest, mass civilian protests going on in China, obviously in, in uh, the capital. 
and it had been brutally suppressed, thousands killed. Well, we, we think thousands killed because we'll, we'll probably never know. But lots and lots of people were killed by their own soldiers going in and uh, suppressing it. That's what he didn't want. There were, there were hardcore elements within the East German military and in the, the security police, the Stasi, saying to Krenzer in meetings and on telephone calls, we've got two elite Stasi motorised units. We can easily go into the city and quell this in 24 hours. It's going to be a lot of shooting and, and people will die, but we can do it. And he, he wanted no part of that. And some of the, the military uh, that I interviewed of the period, there was one guy I've interviewed, he was doing his officer training on the East German Czechoslovak border where the, the main academy was. The week up until that all happened, they were being given right, that they'd been delivered uh, lorry loads of riot shields and gear and they were being trained in how to, to do civilian control. They, they never knew they were going to do that and they didn't even know where they were going. They had no idea. They were only told afterwards. And that's where we were. So there were, there were, there were discussions and arguments going on at, right at the heart of government and it was made plain very clearly with the, with the, uh, the argument of Gorbachev and the Kremlin. Gorbachev was aware of all this that was going on. He said, guys, if you do that, you're on your own. My, guy, my troops that's basically propping up the whole country are staying in barracks. They've been ordered to stay in barracks. We're not getting involved in this. If you do this, it's on your own hands. So it's very easy to see why the House of Cards fell. There's a lovely detail. That we, one of the characters you follow through is John Corbett. Yeah. Um, who, by the... You know, we meet him first as a, as a much younger soldier, but by the end he's the British commander. And he has this role immediately after the walls falling of preventing the Russians from kicking off. Can you yes. just talk us through that? Because there's such a touching... Yeah, so uh, yeah, so Roberts, uh, Sir Roberts, should say, he's a British commandant and he spoke uh, fluent German, uh, which, which obviously helped. And as you said, he'd been there in 61 watching them build the wall as a young lieutenant. So he's the commander and... He again. He's reacting on the ground as events unfold. He's like everyone else. He's caught by surprise with the checkpoints opening. So he's going hither and thither in his jeep and his. And again, this is before mobile, proper mobile phones. So he's got this giant chunk of a phone in his jeep, and he's just trying to figure out uh, as he's going round the British sector what the hell is going on. He's talking to the other commandants, the American and, and the French. He's trying to raise uh, the Russians to find out what's going on with them can't really find out too much because again, they were caught by surprise. And he's told we have to get over to the Brandenburg Gate because uh, near the Russian War Memorial, the West, West Berlin civilians are really, as you said, kicking off against the garrison there. And to give listeners very, very quickly, the, the situation was in the British sector by the Brandenburg Gate. So we had a lot of the big tourist areas we, we, we were in our sector is the Russian War Memorial, which to them is absolutely, quite rightly, is sacrosanct because it represents the blood and sacrifice of the Red Army uh, that, which won Berlin at the end of the war. So over 80,000 Red Army troops died taking Berlin, over 200,000 were wounded. So a huge, huge human cost. So there's this massive war memorial which sits inside the British sector by the Brandenburg Gate. So. The British had allowed the Russians, week in, week out, throughout the whole of the life of the Berlin Wall, that they would allow to have a ceremonial changing of the guard, and there would be a small guard in place always by this Russian memorial inside the British sector, and it was allowed. Even when the wall went up, it was allowed. So 
these are the guys that were caught out. So that around the perimeter fence of uh, this small Russian garrison that's protecting the, the war memorial are thousands of angry West Berliners thinking, well, the wall's coming down, it's the end of the Berlin Wall, we want a little bit of retribution. And, you know, it's always youngsters that are kicking off too. So a situation could have got really seriously out of control. So the message Sir Robert got was the Russian troops there are now fully armed and ready to repel borders if they get over this fence. He made a beeline, obviously, to this, this place and is allowed to get in. The garrison, a Russian officer in charge, gets him into the main, uh, the main building of their garrison. He sits in the middle and he gets all the troops, the Russian troops around him to surround him with an interpreter. And he just says to them, he said, look, this is course is all unawares. I'm like everyone else. I have no idea, idea about the general picture, but all I can promise you as the British commandant of the, my sector is no harm will come to you. And I've already arranged for the West Berlin police to move in and they're gonna surround the garrison, put your arms down and stand down. And he said, you could, you could see the, these young Russian troops, their, their, their shoulders relaxed. Uh, the Russians officer in charge kissed him on both cheeks. They gave him a guard of honor as he's going out. And then, so the situation very quickly was quelled. And then as you're talking about the, the, the lovely story that's, that then happens after that is, as Robert rushes to his next appointment to sort, to sort out, he gets a call from uh, the, uh, uh, British Army HQ in West Berlin, uh, sorry, in West Germany. So it's cranked up to the next level. And they say, what the bloody hell's going on, Robert? And uh, he said, what do you mean? He said, well, we, we've just had uh, a message from a cable system that Stalin himself ordered closed down after the Berlin Wall. We've never used, after the airlift, sorry, in 48, 49. It's never been used since then. It's suddenly opened up and the head of uh, Soviet forces in Germany has sent a message directly addressed to you saying the Red Army will never forget what you've done for us tonight. And he said, what the hell have you done? And, and so he explained and obviously they're saying, well, that's OK, that's OK, get on with your job. But then going forward from that years later, and he gets them today. So I've, I've visited Robert a few times in his, uh, his home down in Dorset. He gets presents every year and they could be a really lovely, beautifully made general's, Red Army general's cap with all the braid and everything else in a box, velvet box. Or he could get the best caviar or he could get the best bottle of vodka. And it's always with a note saying, we never forget. And he's got a cupboard. He opened the cupboard up and just showed me. And I was going, God, this must be worth a thought. I shouldn't say it actually. So, but it's, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just a lovely story of the human side of what was a difficult job was well, a fantastic note to end on um ian mcgregor thank you very much indeed for your time thank you listening to the spectators books podcast very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the itunes store we'd love to hear from you 